All right, how, how many of you have a bulletin? Got a bulletin? Hold it up. Let me see a bulletin. All right, look at the cover on the bulletin. All right, Eric mentioned, I, I think kind of prophetically, about some people maybe standing in a dry well. And what you see on the bulletin there is a picture of me. And I'm in the bottom of a million-gallon dry cistern on the top of Masada by the Dead Sea. And the light is breaking in. You remember that? See, sometimes he comes like the rain. Sometimes he comes like fire. So if you're in a dry place, just lift up your hands. Say, come, Holy Spirit. In whatever way you choose, whatever way you choose. So just for those of you who are new to us, maybe over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been in a series now, I think this is week eight or nine or ten or something, been at this a while, having a good time with it, a series based on Phil Strout's three-point vision for the Vineyard Movement as he's taken over the leadership of of Vineyard. And those three points are presence, proclamation, and the practical. Uh, Within this framework, we've been focused on a mini-series looking specifically at the presence of God, and then somewhere in the middle of that, we encapsulated that into a micro-series focusing on three compulsions of faith, calling, and desire in pursuit of the presence. We have looked at the way into the presence and apprehending the kingdom of God in our the now of our lives as opposed to waiting for a future event that will happen after we breathe our last breath. We were at a, a wonderful memorial service last night, um, and it always impacts me the amount of conversation about the individual who has passed on and what they're experiencing now that they're dead. You know, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. The kingdom is is for us now also. We don't have to wait for his glory after we've gasped our last breath. We, We talked about that. There is... Is something more he has for us to apprehend in the life that we're living. When, when Christ came into your life, the kingdom came to you. You began your kingdom journey at that moment. Don't waste the time that you have here waiting to go on to glory. Come into glory now. And so we talked about that. We talked about an open heaven where we've been granted direct access to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Some of the highlights from that message I think are worth repeating. Remember what the Lord spoke to my heart when his presence overwhelmed me two Mondays ago and sent me prostrate to the floor right over about where Stu is, just flattened me face down. And he spoke this to me, he says, I'm coming to this place in power soon. To a people of prepared hearts, I will show myself to be more than they ever anticipated. 
and I will teach them my ways that they may practice my presence and know me. In the light of this promise, I, I stated, live your life as if you are expecting God to show up and do extraordinary things. Live in anticipation. Because what God has ordained for his church in this time, for his purposes in the earth, and for those who are willing to pursue this as their destiny, is an open heaven. Simply stated, there is nothing between us and God that prevents us from hearing and being empowered by him to do his will. You can hear his will, and you can be empowered to do his... There's nothing in the way. Christ tore the veil. He made a way in. We have an open heaven. We have direct access. So reflecting back at what the Lord spoke to me two weeks ago, and looking what, at what I would guess you might call the bottom line of this idea of his presence, it comes down to this. For our part in all of this, since he has already done all that is necessary for us to come into his presence, our part is to practice the presence. Practice the presence. How many of you have ever uh, set out to accomplish a goal, maybe in a sport or, you know, maybe you started going to the gym and you got this vision of yourself of how you're going to look, you know, after you've paid the dues and got your membership card, right? And all of a sudden you're buff, right? Mm. Takes a lot of practice, a lot of work, right? Practicing his presence. It means you've set a goal in your heart. You've got a vision. You've got a purpose. You're heading towards something. Practicing his presence is getting there. I will teach them my ways that they may practice my presence and know me. And to know him, whether we're looking at the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, or just plain English, to know him is speaking of intimacy. And intimacy is what he has always been after. I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? In relation to the presence. Where are you? Where are you today in relation to the presence? He's promised his presence will come with power. Where are you? God is calling out to people. God is beckoning to people. God is doing things in people's lives that they've been longing for for a long time. We're hearing wonderful testimonies during this series of people just having encounters with healing and families being restored and, and things taking place. You know, some of the initial impact is like, oh my God, I'm in a crisis. And God brings you to that crisis so that he can work out his will, so that we'll shake our heads a little bit and say, whoa, how have I been living? What have I been pursuing? And all of a sudden, we catch God's will. In a crisis of faith, God meets us there. 
The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. These are such powerful verses in that they not only give us a glimpse into the Garden of Eden and you know, into the life lived in Eden, but they also offer us a glimpse into the motivation of the creative heart of God and his interaction with those he so lovingly created. Uh, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Bible Commentary, I was reading this week, and I think it really captures uh, the almost poetic beauty of the relationship as it stood before the fall. In, in their commentary on Genesis 3.8, they say this, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. The divine being appeared in the same manner as formerly, uttering the well-known tones of kindness, walking in some visible form, not running hastily as one impelled by the influence of angry feelings. How beautifully expressive are these words of the familiar and condescending manner in which he had hitherto held intercourse with the first pair in the cool of the day, literally the breeze of the day, the evening. I love how the ESV translation states it. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Listen, I know the sound of Martha. I know the sound of her footfalls. I know that she is approaching before I ever see her. I recognize her approach before I see her appearance. It is an inner knowing, a recognition implanted deep within my psyche through years of intimate contact and interchange that overrides the needs for the natural senses. I don't need to see her to know she's present. What do you think the sound of his presence was like for them. They heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden. Even the structure of the sentence confirms this as theologians are unanimous in their opinion that this is a repetitive present tense. In other words, this was most likely God's daily routine. In the cool of the evening, the chorus would be, hey, daddy's home, right? And how exciting is that for a child? Daddy gets home at the end of the day. Well, not always. Where did your daddy get home, right? <laughs> but it wasn't like that before the fall. Something they look forward to until sin entered the garden of their souls. But we can catch a glimpse of what, might have, what it might have looked like to be an intimate relationship with God, face-to-face -face with no sin or no shame in the way. Let's look back just one chapter to see God at play with Adam in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I want you to skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. Now, I, I just had a vision of this today as I was reading these verses earlier. It's almost like, you know, the scene uh, of dad at the beach on a Saturday afternoon playing in the sand with the kids, you know. And he kind of turns around, he grabs some sand, he makes something. All right, Adam, what is it? Ooh, cow. All right, there you go. Ooh, right? What is it? Peacock. All right. You know, God was creating, but he was also condescending to Adam and saying, listen, partake of what I do. Be part of who I am. God could have said, you see this, Adam? This is a cow. Cow, say moo. Say moo, Adam. All right? Could have done that. I mean, being God and everything, right? But he didn't. He made it and he said, what is it? What is it, Adam? What have I made? What have I created? Put your imprint on my creation. Be part of what I'm doing. God is saying the same thing to his church today. Put your imprint on what God is doing in the earth today. Be part of what he's up to. Find out what God is creating just around he wants to expose something to you so that you can put your hand to it but for adam there was not found a helper fit for him so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. But sin did creep in, and Adam and Eve found themselves naked as before, only now they felt ashamed. They felt exposed, vulnerable, and afraid. Watch what God does next in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Garments of skins. Do you know what that means? God sacrificed living animals. Animals that perhaps he had brought to Adam. Maybe one of the ones he said, what is it, Adam? And he had to sacrifice it. Literally sacrifice them to cover up the shame of Adam's sin. And with that action, religious practice was born. 
you will be one of two ways with God. You will be intimate or you will be religious. And religion as an expression of worship to God is little more than a cover-up. A fear of intimacy, afraid of being exposed and vulnerable, a fear of appearing weak and dependent in a world that admires strength and independence, or perhaps just a fear of being found unacceptable to a God who loved you enough to know you by name and to become God's lamb slain from the foundations of the world for our sin and shame. I don't want to sound oversimplistic in this, but it really does come down to choice. Religious activity or intimate relationship. And please don't get me wrong, it takes religious activity to become intimate with God. That's really not the issue. The folly comes when the religious activity becomes the destination rather than the road that we take to reach that final goal of intimacy with the one who loves us. Here's two sides of the same coin, and it runs like a thread through the scriptures. Side one, if I pray enough, if I fast enough, tithe enough, do enough good works, go to church every week, sing on the worship team, go to small group faithfully, then I will be acceptable to God, and he will love me and bless my life. Jesus addresses this in the religious of his days in Luke eleven forty two, He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. See, they did it to the letter. And neglect justice, listen to this, neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect justice and intimacy. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Lack of love negates the value of religious deeds. Side two of that coin, because God has loved me and blessed my life through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, Bless me with eternal and abundant life. I will praise him and worship his holy name. I will read his word like it is bread for my soul and fast and pray that I might know him in deeper ways. I will serve his church and love the unlovely because he first loved me. And I will seek him like he is the air that I breathe just because he is who he is. And most people who live this style live it for the most part in secret. Not for show or recognition, but out of love. Which side of the coin do you want? So Joshua is preparing to bring Israel into God's promised land, and he offers them the choice. Listen to this in Joshua twenty-four fifteen. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Who did that song? Is that going to serve somebody? Bob Dylan, right? 
amazing song, right? You're going to serve somebody, right? So choose you this day whom you're going to serve. It's about choice. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now notice what Joshua does. In presenting the choice, he has sandwiched the relationship with the living God between the extreme bookends of religious practice. On the one end was the gods of your fathers served beyond the river. Here he's looking back to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, which was famous for its massive temple structures called ziggurats, hundreds of feet high with temples on their tops, and they were erected to all kinds of gods. I mean, they were doing sacrifices every day with all kinds of pomp and circumstances. The cities were laid out so that they could have ongoing parades and festivals, all focused towards these ziggurats and these false gods. On the other end were the Amorites, who just kept it really simple. They just killed their kids and sacrificed them to their gods. Who are you going to serve? Extreme ends of religion. Or will you choose this? Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's religion or intimacy. Those are the choices. An intimate and loving relationship with a personal God who loves and redeems and provides and cares for those who love him and even sometimes for those who don't. It would seem like a no-brainer, an easy choice, but given the chance, Israel opts to create a religious system all their own instead. In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Now all of that was going on because the presence was coming down. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. You become the priest, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us. What a choice. We want religion. We don't want intimacy, hmm? lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. If you are not intimate, if you're not in an intimate relationship with God, you are far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was, the people stood far off, but not all of them. You see, because the choice is individual. Not everybody will go up the mountain. Not even the majority will go up the mountain, but some will. Moses did, and he didn't go up alone. Look at Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, 
that I may give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. Joshua made the choice, I'm going up. You guys want to sit over, you sit over there, I'm going up. I want what's up there. I want the thunder. I want the trembling. I want the rattling of the trumpets. I want that in me. I'm going up. Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us, and for us, you see, for us, until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses waited six days, six days of expectation, six days of practicing his presence so that he could abide in his presence for 40. Why? Because Isaiah says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It takes practice to come into his presence. And so Joshua, through watching Moses on the mountaintops, and and I got to tell you, every account that I can find, Joshua is somewhere nearby. You know, whether Moses has been up and coming down and the children of Israel are sinning and singing and dancing, who's the encounter on the mountain is Joshua. He's always nearby. Joshua, through watching Moses on the mountaintops, learns the value of intimacy over religion and puts it into practice. In Exodus 33, 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. I want you to remember that, the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now there's an interesting play of words here where we have the entrance of the tent, which speaks of an unobstructed open entryway where the presence of God would dialogue with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then we have 
the tent door where each man would rise up and worship. Now, the Hebrew word used here for tent door is ohel, O-H-E-L, and it's Strong's number H-168, and has within its meaning a covering, a covering. And in this usage, it refers to the use of a talit. Does everyone know what a talit is? Yes, I, I found mine. This is a talit. It's a Hebrew prayer shawl. So this is what would happen. As Moses went into the tent and the sound of his presence began to come, all the men would cover up. Where have we seen this before? Isn't that what Adam did? You see, because they had no intimacy. They had no way of relating with the presence. They had to cover up. They had to become religious. And so Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, says, if a man covers his head while he prays or prophesies, it's a shame. It's a shame. Why? Because if you feel shame, you cover up in the presence of God. But my God doesn't shame me. He may discipline me. I may feel conviction in my heart, but I never feel ashamed in his presence. So the sound of his presence would descend and the men would begin to cover themselves. They would rise up. This speaks of their own power or strength. That's what you have to apply in religious activity. It's all of the flesh. They would cover up. This speaks of their personal fear or shame. That's what I spoke of with Paul. And they would worship, and this speaks of their religious practice. What they would not do is what Moses and Joshua both chose to do. At the sound of his presence, they would go out to the tent. This speaks of their willingness to leave everything else for a time to be with him. To leave everything else for a time to be with him. What does he want from me? What does this God want from me? He wants you. Just you. They would enter into the tent. This speaks of a love that overcomes fear. Perfect love casts out fear. They would talk with God. This speaks of personal intimacy and friendship with God. And one more, Joshua would linger in the presence. And this speaks of a hunger for God that can be satisfied by nothing except the presence of God himself. Joshua could find that nowhere else. He had to stay behind. So today, I want to give you a little something and some homework before we pray. How many of you remember my prayer cards? 
Some of you still use them, which I'm very impressed with. Thank you. Well, this is an, another little card that I made up. On this side, it has John 15, verses 1 through 16, and that is the I am the vine, you are the branches scriptures, okay, all written out from the Message Bible, which I thought was really a little more poetic, okay? And on the back side, it has nothing yet. So this is your homework. Everyone gets one. I'd like you to take this home, read it, meditate on it, consider it before the Lord. Really let it sink into your heart and then wait and listen. And on the back, write down what he says to you and bring it back here next week. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. He hasn't told me yet. But it should be an interesting service, right? So we have six days to wait. We'll have six days to wait, and on the seventh day, will his presence come? On the seventh day, will he call us in to the smoky darkness where he is? I hope so. I hope so. So a couple of ushers and usherettes. While they're passing those out, I'll just read the scripture to you. It's an awesome set of scriptures, no matter what version you're reading. But this is the message version. I am the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. Every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message I have spoken. Listen to this. Live in me. This is an invitation of Jesus Christ. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine. You are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation, intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples, I've loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my Father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command, love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking or planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from my father. 
You didn't choose me. Remember, I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask, the Father in relation to me, he gives you. So all that we've been talking about for the last eight or nine weeks in relation to the presence, this week you get to practice. Put it into practice. I want to share a story back in 1990. Uh, Martha and I were deeply involved at uh, Oconia Christian Fellowship, doing a lot of uh, evangelism. We had the tent outreach up in Plymouth. We had two house groups going. And I had a dream one night. And in the dream, the Lord showed me, it's time for you to leave. And uh, I didn't want to. I really didn't. I was very comfortable there. I was doing things I like to do. And uh, I went to the elders. I shared the dream. And they said, you got to go. And so I, I left. I fell into three days of very deep depression. And I said to him, why do I have to go? Why are you making me do this? And he said, do you remember your mother's father, your grandfather? When you were a little boy, he had a grapevine in the backyard. And every spring, before the vine would begin to produce new sprouts, he would go out with a screwdriver and start stabbing the arbor. The arbor it was the wooden support system he had for the vine. It was quite extensive. To see if there was any dead wood, if any of the rails would have to be replaced. And he'd do all that in anticipation of the vine bringing forth fruit, which would be heavy by the end of the summer. And the Lord said to me, for the last two years, you've been trying to suck life out of dead wood. He said, the church, I'm not there because the church is there. The church is there because I'm there. And you can only get your life from me. I had to prune you away so that you could survive. You know, I didn't know my activity was religious. I thought I was serving him according to his will. Really, what I was doing, I was satisfying stuff in me. I felt good about me, and that's why I felt comfortable there. And I thank God all the time now that he gave me that gift because here we are. <laughs> and how awesome is this, right? So let's practice this week. Let's practice his presence. Take this home, read it, meditate on it, get into it, spend time waiting and listening for the Lord. Write down what he says to you and bring it back next week, and we'll see what we do with that. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, enliven us today, oh God. Enliven us. Thank you, Jesus. Before we, before we close, Arlene, would you... Share that word you had. She just had a sense of a word during the worship time that I, I think I'd be amiss if I let it go by. And I hope I can paint the picture like I saw it. Um, I had seen a little skit a long time ago from Sermon Spice, and the Lord played it for me. 
today, and it was a picture of him walking through the house and all the doors were open, and then he started going up the staircase and he came into the attic, and there was a door that was locked. And what I was sensing him saying is that there is definitely someone here, but maybe many someones, I don't know, who have a locked door, and it's been locked for a long time, and he's standing in front of that door, and especially going along with this, and you, but you're saying to him, but this has been locked for so long, I, even if I open it, I don't think it's going to make any difference. And what I was sensing is that if you would just open that door today and let all that go, every door in your house will be open to him and he'll be able to flow through you. So I'll leave that. So, Lord, your word says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens unto me, I will come in and sup with him. And maybe that word rings true for you. Maybe you've got some locked up areas, some areas you're wearing a covering over your head. You know, the interesting thing about that phrase, at their tent doors, tents don't have doors. They have flaps, you know. I mean, you'd have to really go out of your way to put a door on a tent. So, and I think we do. I think we really go out of our way sometimes to protect ourselves from God. But he's coming. He's coming in power to a people who are looking for him, who will tear down the doors, who will open the doors, who will you know, stand out exposed and vulnerable to a God who loves them.